0: If you will join me this morning, we will be in the book of Colossians. We will be looking at Colossians chapter one, verses fifteen through twenty-three. The title of our sermon this morning is "All Things New," and the keywords for our worshipers in training are sin, cross, and peace. Now all of us here this morning have gone through things in our lives, significant moments in our lives that we can look back on and identify as pivotal, life-changing events, life-changing seasons of life. And some of these events are wonderful, they're beautiful, they are encouraging. Things like getting married, graduating from high school or college, having children, or beginning a lifelong career, retiring maybe from many years of difficult work. But there are other life-changing events that are difficult and dark and sad, oftentimes filled with questions and doubts, being diagnosed with a significant disease, or losing a child in the womb. Getting laid off from your longtime job, or watching your marriage fall to pieces. All of us have these kinds of moments in life. I suspect that right now, as I mention some of them, you have your own things going on in your heart that are brought to mind. Many of them are personal memories, but we could also talk about things that we experience together. People often remark on where they were on significant historical events. Like when John F. Kennedy was assassinated or when the United States beat Russia in their Miracle on Ice in 1980 Olympic hockey match. Or when America was attacked and the buildings came down in New York City on September 11th, 2001. Now some of you are too young to have experienced or remember any of those three events I just mentioned. But as we live life in this world, there will be many more. We will remember where we were and what we were doing in those times. But the absolute most significant life-changing event in all of the world is when God raises men and women from the dead. Have you been raised from the dead? One of my favorite things to experience as a pastor is to have conversations with people who've maybe visited the church for a while, who've been in and out, who are pretty uninterested most of the time. But out of the blue, they come by and visit or they call and they want to talk. And it goes something like this. Something has happened to me and I don't know what it is. I come and I listen to sermons. They didn't mean anything. But last Sunday, all of a sudden I felt like you were talking directly to me. Like nobody else is in the room. All of a sudden I realize that I have rejected God. I have rejected his authority in my life. And I have lived for myself day by day. I have given no thought to what God requires of me. I never thought I was selfish. I never thought I was a liar. I never thought that I was anything other than a good person. But for whatever reason, I realized that I thought about myself all wrong. I am selfish. I am a liar. I am constantly living for myself with no thought of God. I don't care about other people. I care about getting what I want, and that's it. And as long as I get what I want, I'm happy and I think I'm a good person. But for the first time in my life, I realized that's not true. I'm not a good person. It's the first time I ever thought about that. But for some reason, as soon as I realized all of these things, that seemed like this tremendous weight, this huge burden had been lifted from my life. What is going on? Have you heard that before? Maybe you have experienced that in your own life. In fact, as I look across the room, I can see several of you that I've had that conversation with through the years. There's something I know about our church specifically, and it's overwhelming to me every every time I think about it or talk about it. We are a people who, for the most part are first-generation Christians. We're not raised in Christian homes. We were not raised in the church. A few exceptions to that, but for the most part, that's it. Most of the time, many of us were saved later in life. That is amazing. You know what that means? That, collectively, we have a lot of garbage in our lives. Stories that we can tell that we are not proud of. Difficult things that we have walked through and had to deal with and regrets that we carry along. We have some great memories. We have things that we've gone through together and individually and in our families but we have a lot of dark things that we wish weren't there. And so we're people who know what it means to be broken, what it means to be beat up. We know what life can be because of deep sin. And yet, we are people who have experienced grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. We haven't assumed we have it all together. We haven't assumed, hopefully, that we just need Jesus to help us clean up a few things. But hopefully, we've recognized how incredibly our Our lives were messed up until Jesus changed them radically. And we see this when people start asking questions about our lives. And for a time, all we know to say is, I once was blind, but now I see. Or to just say what we end up saying the rest of our lives in Sunday school. Jesus. It was Jesus. But really, that's a great question. What happened? What happens to a person who loves their sin, hates God, is always seeking to glorify themselves, but then all of a sudden they love and desire and long for and want more of and strive with everything inside of them to bring glory to Jesus Christ? It's what Jesus calls the new birth. It's what happens through the power of God in the gospel to change dead, cold hearts to make all things new in Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want for us to consider how God has made a way for a people, a people who once despised the very thought of holiness to then love and strive for God and all that he calls us to every day of our lives. So we're going to look together together at Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 23. If you're using our blue ESV Bible in the seat back in front of you, the text is on page 983. Colossians 1 beginning in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, in order for us to understand all of this, there's something I need to let you know first. I need to tell you the story of the rest of the Bible, and I promise we will be done by dinner time. Now, even if you don't know anything about the Bible, I am guessing that you've at least heard the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1 and 2, we see the story being unpacked on how God created all that exists by his power and the power of his word. And he loved it, and he called it good. And in Genesis 2, we see where God creates the first man and calls him Adam, and he creates him in his own image and likeness. But God recognizes that Adam also needs a helper. He didn't want Adam to be alone, so he creates from one of Adam's ribs a wife named Eve. So Adam and Eve are our very first parents, created from the dust by God placed in a pristine garden that exists without death and without destruction and without shame and arguing and pain and suffering. There was a perfect rhythm between God and man, a perfect communion that they shared, and and God says it is very good. But we have to remember that God made a covenant with Adam in which he said the following... The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So what happens? Well, almost immediately we see Adam do what any of us would have done. We read in Genesis 3, you can turn there with me if you'd like, Genesis 3 beginning in verse 1. We read, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is the same question at the root of every single sin that we commit. Did God really say to not do this? And the woman said to the servant, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, there's a problem with Eve's statement there. That's not what God said. God did not tell them they couldn't touch it. He simply told them not to eat of it. But ever since this time, we, like Eve, have sought to redefine the law of God. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Adam ignores his responsibility to lead his wife. He's passive. He's lazy. She's attacked by the evil one and she falls and he falls with her. The same thing each of us does when we know we are in sin. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And so Adam blames God and Adam blames Eve, but he says nothing of his own heart. He's shifting all of the blame away from himself. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pains in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. you shall return. So God curses the serpent, he curses Adam, he curses Eve, and ever since the fall of our first parents, we have imitated them, doing the same stupid things and getting the same results. So there's this perfect union, this communion between God and man, but all of creation is fractured in a single moment because of a single sin. A single instance of disobedience. And this didn't only destroy the relationship between God and man, but also the relationship between man and woman and man and creation. And the result of it all is brokenness. And even if you claim not to believe a word of what I just told you, you can at least admit this. The world all around us is broken. You cannot honestly deny that. The world is messed up, and we encounter the results of that everywhere we turn. Relationships are broken. Husbands and wives, and friends and neighbors, they come and go. We abuse creation. With food, we become gluttons. With drink, we become drunkards. With sex, we lust and fornicate. And the most heinous of all, man has assumed that God is a personal genie. We get from him what we want, but we laugh and we mock and we dishonor and we ignore all that he has commanded of us. Because in the end, we think he just needs to deal with it. Because after all, he loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life, right? And in the mindset, what we're really doing is saying that we get to decide who goes to heaven. We get to decide who is cursed to hell by our own standard, by our own law, and our own idea of what is righteous and what is not. What is good and what is bad is in the mind of each and every man. But we have to know this. When we sin against God, here's what's actually going on. We are breaking his law, which is the only standard that matters. We are worshiping idols. We are seeking our satisfaction in created things rather than in him. Are you addicted to sex and pornography? Are you constantly looking for your next partner or trying to find your next glance to feed your craving? Are you addicted to the internet? you always checking your devices to see if you have a message or looking to get the next follow-up on something you want to know? Are you a workaholic? Do you have time for your family or for leisure? Or perhaps you're on the other end of the spectrum and all you have time for is a hedonistic pursuit of life and the very idea of work makes you Cringe. These are all ways, among millions of others, that mankind has sought to find satisfaction in ways that he will never find it. Nothing in this world was created or intended to fill your deepest longing for satisfaction. All of it was created to point you to the only source of true, lasting satisfaction, who is Christ himself it's become popular to soften the reality of sin against God and the righteous judgment of God. So we talk oftentimes about the universal problem of humanity in very different terms. For example, you might hear all of this referred to as a life without purpose or meaning. Or you might hear talk of the corruption of the world and all of its systems, or that we're not living up to God's best for humanity. Now, are any of these things completely wrong? No, but they don't get to the heart of the issue. Sin is a personal, blameworthy transgression of the law of God. It is our doing what God has forbidden. It's a complete rejection of the authority of the one who created us and sustains us. It is the rejection of the eternal king. Yes, sin results in a lack of purpose. Yes, sin manifests itself in corruption through the world in pretty horrendous ways. It is a terrible distortion of what God has created us for but the true essence of sin is us deciding that we know and get to decide what is right and what is wrong, what is worthy of worship, and what our lives should look like. And as a result, as Paul tells us, we are dead in our transgressions and sins. Sin, from the very beginning, has resulted in death. It's not simply breaking some rules, Or doing a few bad things. It's not about our outward actions ultimately. Sin is an issue of the heart. And the heart is wicked and rebellious and unknowable. Sin is a personal offense against God. And it demands and deserves his eternal judgment. That's why Jesus says in John 3.18 that we all stand condemned already. Already. It's also why Paul explains in Romans 3 that terrible verdict that in the end every mouth will be stopped and all the world will be found guilty before God. And if we want to live, if we want life, we desperately need God's verdict over us to be something other than guilty. And apart from God's remedy, you and I can't fix this. It is who we were born to be. It is our nature as human beings. And you might say, well, I'm not that bad. I'm a good person. But the Bible is infinitely clear. God is storing up wrath for you. So all of your efforts and all of your works... And all of your attempts at a good moral life amount to death apart from God's only remedy. So how much of creation fell? All of it. Not one square inch of creation is unaffected by the original sin of our parents. And all of this sounds really bad and really dark. And it is. And some of you are thinking, I'm really glad I was invited to church today. So welcome. (laughs) But there is really good news in the middle of God cursing all of creation. We read right over it. It's one verse in Genesis 3. And God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, Satan will be the enemy of man throughout all of this life. However, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do you see that in the middle of a curse, God offers hope and restoration. God is going about bringing a descendant of this woman who will crush the head of Satan, even though his own heel will be bruised. It's hope. It's a promise. And it has already been fulfilled. And the rest of the Bible is about how God relates to sinful man. And how God is working to bring about reconciliation between himself and man. So how does he do it? Well, there's a lot of ways we can talk about God doing this great work. But most importantly, he brings about Christ. Christ who would bruise the serpent's head. Even though his heel would be bruised in return. But I want to focus our attention on what happens in the midst of all of this. And it's what we read in Colossians 1. The Apostle Paul is writing here in Colossians about Jesus Christ. But it's interesting about how Paul does that. Paul doesn't begin with Jesus born of a virgin in Bethlehem. That is wonderful and that is gloriously true, but Paul goes back much further than the birth of Jesus as a man. He deals with eternity past and he presents Jesus as God who has existed eternally, forever in heaven. And in fact we see in Colossians 1 verses 15 and 16 that by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And then Jesus is presented to us as the creator of all things but also presented by Paul as the sustainer of all things. Verse 17 says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Listen, you are not breathing and sitting here right now because you are a vegan or because you exercise or because you take your Flintstone vitamins every day. Those things are fine, but they are only to help you feel better. The only reason your heart is beating and there is breath in your lungs right now is because of the Lord Jesus Christ who is sovereign over you and me and because he says so. And that's it. You and I are allowed to live another second. So here's how it all comes together. Jesus existed before all things. He created all things, and now he holds all things together. So what does that mean for him? Paul writes, he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Paul's not simply saying what so many want to say today, that Jesus was a good man, or that Jesus was a good moral teacher or philosopher. That Jesus was a prophet? No, Paul very clearly and unashamedly says, Jesus is God in the truest and fullest sense. And he is king. And he is ruler over his church. And he is preeminent over all of creation. Jesus is the supreme and sovereign king in every way over every thing. And there is not one atom of existence that has ever or will ever exist that Jesus doesn't have absolute authority over for he has created it and he sustains it. And if there is anything admirable, if there is anything worthy of praise, anywhere in all of the universe, it is summed up supremely in Jesus Christ. He rules with absolute supremacy And though it may not seem so now, it is only a matter of time until he is revealed from heaven in flaming fire to give relief to those who trust in him and to inflict righteous vengeance on those who do not. Paul goes on in verse 20 and says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Remember the promise of Genesis 3.15? This is it. Jesus Christ has defeated Satan and death and has made peace with man through the blood of his cross. What does that mean? What does that look like? When we talk about atonement, it calls to mind the evil that sin is and the necessary wrath that God has towards sin. And who wants to be reminded of their sin? I know in my flesh I don't. Who wants to hear about God who hates sin? Who wants to see themselves as needing forgiveness for their sin? But the atonement, as taught by the Bible, calls even more to mind. More than our sin. More than our need for atonement. The Bible calls to mind the unfathomable love of God to send his Son to take away our sins. The amazing grace of God to cover over our sins with precious, perfect blood from the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who is Jesus. That's what atonement is, covering Atonement is indeed a bloody business. Countless animals were slaughtered in the Old Testament. But this theme of Scripture, the atonement thread, it shows the blood of Jesus alone can cover over the sins of his people and wash them away completely and forever. Now recognize that the message of God's atoning love is not only for us. We are to call everyone everywhere to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Few spiritual topics are more divisive and more unifying at the same exact time. But a biblical understanding of the atonement brings the church together across tribes and languages and nations and even all throughout time. It is the mission of the church to make the atonement of Jesus Christ known throughout the world. So here's what all of this means. God has a perfect standard that is revealed in his law. The standard is absolute perfection of heart and action in all that God commands. However, as we have already identified, there is not one man, one woman, or one child alive who can achieve God's standard. Since the fall of Adam and Eve, every person who has been born has been born into a state of sin and misery. All that is except for one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit, that he not be corrupted by the seed of man. He lived a perfect, sinless life, fulfilling the fullness of God's righteous law in fulfillment of a covenant made with the Father and centuries of prophecy. Jesus was hated, he was mocked, he was ridiculed by the people of his day, he was crucified on a cross of wood. And so we have a perfect, spotless, righteous, blameless man who is God, who's nailed to a cross and left to die. And while we can think of all that happened to him physically and what a horrendous, torturous act it was, what was going on spiritually was of even greater significance. The Father was pouring upon his Son, All of the wrath that is stored up and reserved for the people of God. You see, every single sin that has ever been committed by you and by me and everyone who has ever lived must be paid for. Every single sin. And it will happen in one of two ways. Either you will pay for your own sin for the rest of eternity, condemned and cast away from God in everlasting torment, or Christ has paid the penalty for your sins already upon the cross. He has died in your place. And so what has happened is what we call the great exchange. My sins were given to Christ and his righteousness has been given to me because he took upon himself all of the wrath that I deserve. We read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him to be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the pivotal moment in all of human history. God making a way that we would have peace with him. And Paul tells us in verse 20, peace with God came by way of the blood of his cross. Peace with God came only through the slaughter of the perfect spotless lamb in our place. That's atonement. That's covering. That is love. That's unfathomable love. And Paul goes on to tell us why that is so remarkable. Look again in verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, it's the very thing we've talked about. You, Christian, were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You, non Christian, You are alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. But God has made a way in Jesus Christ. He has made a way of reconciliation through the destruction of his own body and of his own flesh by his own death, that we might receive his righteous standing. And we know we have this righteous standing, not because we say we do, not because we change a few habits and start coming to church, not because we've re- we've prayed a certain prayer or said a certain thing, but because we have repented of a life of sin and we've placed all of our trust and all of our hope and all of our faith and find all of our assurance in Jesus Christ alone. And the Holy Spirit fills us with the desire to, to live for Christ instead of the world. And if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel, you will be found righteous before God. He will look at you. He will see the work of Christ who has covered you in his atoning blood and he will declare to you the very thing that we must hear if we will have eternal life, not guilty. Friends, there are some of you here this morning who have a lot of questions and I'm thankful you're here. Some of you are here and you think you've heard this a thousand times and you're ready to go eat lunch. But just hear me out and we'll be done. God tells us he does not wink at sin. He doesn't shrug his shoulders as if it were no big deal. Your sin, in the eyes of God, is no misdemeanor. It is a felony. It is a capital offense, and it is worthy of instant death. So here's the question for you. How are you responding? There are at least five different kinds of people listening to God's word this morning. I'm going to address four quickly. The first is the reckless sinner you hear what I'm saying and you roll your eyes and you harden your heart. And I assure you, God does not take that lightly. I'm a good person. I'm here at church. I dropped a few dollars in your plate. You people and your holier-than-thou talk. You preacher with your hell, fire, and damnation. I don't need this. If that's you, I warn you and I fear for you. You are recklessly and carelessly waltzing through life, denying the God that you know exists. And you're seeking to live on your own terms. You exist on very dangerous ground. But then there's also the awakened sinner. This is the response we long for. This is what we pray for and hope for. You sit here with a conscience full of arrows and you feel yourself bleeding out because of your sin. You are guilty. You hear me and the more I talk about it, the the more you feel yourself sink in your seat and the more you feel the weight of God's word and the weight of your sin and you're thinking of all the ways you've sinned against God. All the things you've said, and all the things you've done, and all the things that are in your heart, day after day after day, and week after week after week. And you know you are guilty. And you are right. And I hope that the burden that comes as a result of that feels all the heavier today because the scriptures say that your sin will not go unpunished. It's dreadful, it is fearful. You are in trouble. The wrath of God is stored up against you and ready to be poured out, and I hope this causes you to tremble in fear. However, I have a blessed hope for you. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, God says that He is forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty. That seems like a contradiction, doesn't it? And I hope it puts us on the edge of our seats as awakened sinners and everything inside of you is saying, what must I do to be saved? You, awakened sinner, can take your dirty, filthy hands of sin and place them upon the Lamb of God who takes it all away who bears the sins of the world, all of your acts of defiance in your heart and your lips and in your hands and all that you've done, take those filthy hands and place them on the Lamb of God and wipe them clean in his pristine woolen coat and you will be free from the penalty of sin. In Jesus Christ, every drop of sin comes off of you. And then you pull away, and what happens is that the eternal avalanche of God's wrath that was stored up for you has already fallen on Jesus Christ on crucifixion day. All of the wrath of God fell down upon the Son of God All of the hatred of God in your heart has been paid for and poured out on Jesus Christ so that we would not have to receive the very same treatment. Have you placed your hands upon the Lamb? If so, what is there left for you on Judgment Day? Not a single... pebble to be stoned by, and not a single drop of blood to be shed. Not a single solitary grain of God's anger will fall on you because it has already fallen on the Lord Jesus Christ. Awakened sinner, I have the best news for you. Acknowledge your sin, recognize your sin, admit your sin before God, turn from your sin and place your faith and your trust and your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Believe that God the Father crushed God the Son for you, that you might receive all of his righteousness in your place. I pray for you today, and I will pray for you this week. I will pray that you cannot say or know anything other than all I know is that once I was blind, but now all of the sudden, all I can do is see. Jesus did it. He's real to me. And I pray that he will strike you with trembling and fear and cause in your heart for you to be born again. Well, another type of person here this morning is the bored believer. There are a few of you who hear all of this and think maybe that you've heard all of this before and hopefully you have. Surely you have if you are a believer. You've repented of your sin, you're trusting in Jesus, but all of this is just sort of The same. Listen, if that's you, I am really worried about where your heart is. If you're not absolutely amazed that your world isn't rocked again and again and again by the good news of the gospel. If your communion with God has grown so cold that the gospel of God's grace doesn't overwhelm your heart and leave you amazed yet again, I am concerned at the state of your soul. I really pray that you at least hear me now, as difficult as it may seem right now, because you're in a spiritual desert in your life. But I pray for you that you would go home, that you would fall on your knees and beg the Lord to open your heart, to open your eyes afresh, to be absolutely captivated by Jesus Christ, absolutely overwhelmed by his love and his grace towards you. You need to be amazed all over again by the good news of Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will do that and that you won't be found lacking in true faith in Jesus us on the day of judgment are you a bored believer may God be merciful and overwhelm your heart with joy in Christ this very hour lastly there are also here this morning those who are smitten believers it is those who are not doubting their salvation but maybe ashamed of their lack of sanctification. Some of you feel beat up and battered. You're down on yourself because you feel like you're not making any progress in your walk with Christ. And you think, I'm so ashamed of myself. I tremble at the thought of what would happen if God held me guilty for the sin of my life each day. I could never stand Who will rescue me from this body of death? That was the prayer of Paul. Well, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is why it's important for us to know and to hear again and again the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because you know, even as a Christian, you will sin. But Jesus doesn't love you any less today than he did on the day he saved you. And he doesn't love you any less today than he will 10,000 years from now. He is growing you. He is shaping you. He is making you more holy. But he loves you and he cares for you. Brothers and sisters, he has died for you. The testimony of every Christian is that there is no way we could ever be saved apart from the mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ because the sin of our hearts is so deep and so pervasive that we are constantly prone to rebel against God. But let's be honest about that. The real truth about us is that we are so guilty that the very Son of God had to be crucified to pay for our sins. So if that's true... Why would we ever pretend to be something other than what we are? Sinners saved by grace. That's what we are. And to act in any other way is to live a lie. And even more than it being a lie is that it's a denial of the grace of God and its necessity. The grace of God alone has the power to save us. And don't minimize the fact that God has made peace with you through the blood of the cross by denying the fact that you are who you are. Be honest about that. We need Jesus. That's nothing to be ashamed of. Something wonderful happens when we're willing to confess the real truth about ourselves and all of the sin in our lives. What happens is that we are able to see the real truth about Jesus and what he has done for our salvation. Jesus is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. And there is no way to get to the Father but through him. And so the call of all of Scripture for all kinds of people, no matter where you find yourself this morning spiritually, is to look to Christ that you might live because he and he alone can make all things new. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that by the power of the blood of the lamb who was slain, That all that we are apart from Christ. That separates us from you by our sin. And by the seduction of this world. That all that we deserve because of these things. That we can be assured that we have hope. That there is one and only one to be satisfied in. And that we can have true joy, that we can have true peace, that we can have assurance in the midst of brokenness, in the midst of trial and struggle and temptation, that we can turn to Christ and we can live, that we can live abundantly in Christ, that we can live apart from a fear of being destroyed because Christ was crushed on our behalf. And that we have the assurance of new life because Christ has been raised from the dead to secure our seating with him on high, that we would worship the one who has loved us to death forever and ever and ever. I pray, God, that you would awaken the dead and bring them to life. I pray, God, for those who hear all of this and reject it, that you would strike their hearts with the reality of their sin and their need for repentance. I pray for those who feel beaten and battered down as they've been reminded of their lives and of the sin in their lives this morning, that you bring them to the end of themselves that they might trust in Christ alone. I pray for your people this morning, those who are bored, those who go through life with very little communion with you because they have been enticed and intrigued by the things of the world instead of all that brought them to you in the first place. Bring them to repentance. Amaze them yet again by the power of your gospel. And for those who feel down on themselves who desire greater growth and greater satisfaction in Christ, I pray, God, that you would satisfy them by your love, through the means of grace, that their hope and assurance would be restored, and that they would walk faithfully with you all the days of their life, because you, who has saved us, will keep us. May we rest in you for our full hope and assurance that you would be glorified and that our joy would be made complete. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.